0: Now you talk about terror. What about for me? I've been terrorized all my day. I'm all, all my day. Cartoonist Joe Sacco invented nonfiction graphic journalism, marrying rigorous and detailed reporting with illustrations that leap off the page and give his stories a texture, depth, and visceral power that is often hard to match for writers. He pioneered this work with nine issues on the Palestinians living under Israeli occupation from 1993 to 1995. The nine comics, later published as the book Palestine, educated a generation about the tragedy that has gripped the Palestinians since the creation of the State of Israel in 1948. Palestine, which gained a cult following, won an American Book Award, and is a staple on college syllabuses across the country. Edward Said, in the introduction to Palestine, wrote With the exception of one or two novelists and poets, no one has ever rendered this terrible state of affairs better than Joe Sacco. Joe's book, sadly, remains even more relevant today than when it was written. But Joe was not done. He invested over four years in his masterpiece, one of the finest books on the Israel-Palestine conflict, footnotes in Gaza. He explored the little-known massacres of Palestinians by Israeli soldiers when they occupied Rafa and Hanayunis in the Gaza Strip, in November 1956. He doggedly tracked down victims and eyewitnesses to combine investigative journalism and oral history from the past to explain the present. Context is key, and context in the reporting of the genocide in Gaza is largely absent in the U.S. media. This makes Joe's work not only timely but vital for our understanding of this conflict. Joining me to discuss his two seminal works, Palestine and Footnotes in Gaza, is Joe Sacco. I, I went, I've read the books before, of course. I reread them. They are stunningly powerful. Um, I've worked with you, as, and I know uh, what high standards you have as a journalist and a reporter. Um, uh, Palestine was really where the you kind of formulated this marriage between journalism and uh, illustration. And, and, and of course, at first, no one quite understood what you were doing or knew how to handle it. Um, it's incredibly effective. Um, but talk about how that
1: evolved, how that came to be. Okay, Chris. Well, very good to see you. Um, well, um, I wasn't sure what I was doing, to be quite honest. I was a cartoonist doing comic books. I'd had a degree in journalism, couldn't get a journalism job. And um, uh, I basically wanted to do a series of comics about uh, sort of like a travelogue in the Palestinian territories. I was quite interested in what was was going on there. And it was sort of coming out of the autobiographical tradition of underground comics or um, alternative comics. So I went there thinking it would just be sort of me, my experiences, talking to some people, trying to get some Palestinian, uh, Palestinian perspectives on things. But when I was there, the, the journalistic training I had really kicked in. And I just found myself behaving like a journalist and thinking in those terms, the, the way I'd, I'd, uh, I had studied. And it sort of came together organically. So in other words, I didn't have some big idea about what I was going to do before I, I went there. The things came together uh, very naturally, and it's it's in my later work that I think I was a little more journalistically inclined. But that first work was where I was sort of experimenting with the melding of comics and journalism. And talk
0: about the illustration. I mean, I know because I've worked with you. There, it is
1: uh,
0: highly laborious. I mean, it takes you tremendous amounts of time to. I mean, the and. The, And also, we did a book together, Days of Destruction, Days of Revolt. Uh, And then I know from, of course, uh, your great work, Footnotes in Gaza, the kind of research you do, um, it's, it's not just that you're meticulous about the reporting, but you're meticulous about the images.
1: Yeah, that's super important. I mean, I want the reader to viscerally feel like in the places I've been and in those times when I'm taking them back into historical episodes. I want them to feel that too. I so I do a lot of I do a lot of visual research. I look at photographs. I look at books. Whatever I can get to uh, make what I'm doing just feel more real. And let's talk about Palestine. the The book
0: itself it was a series of not ni- originally nine comics, right? Put together in the book Palestine. Um, but having just reread it, it 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 doesn't feel like nine comics. It 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 holds together it coalesces as a book, uh, partly because you look at uh you know various aspects of the occupation. um Can you talk about what what you did in those nine comics and which has now been published as a book?
1: Yeah, originally, I was going to do six comics and it just became nine. A lot of it was episodic um I sort of let it go where it went um in my actual travels. In other words, uh, there were a lot of random events, and I think it has that quality to it. But while I was there, uh, it became clear to me that if I wanted to sort of an assemb- assemble a picture of what the occupy- occupation looked like, I would have to sort of piece together some things. So I began, I just listened to what people were telling me, and I realized what were the important components. And then I began following them up. For example, life in prison or what it was like to be in prison, and so many people there had been in prison that I talked to. I, I realized that was an essential part of it. Torture, because that was going on, the demolition of houses, um, just the, and the random humiliations. So I put those things together uh, in one section of the book, and then in another, uh, a little more self-contained, when I, I went to Gaza, and I talked about my experiences there. And that was another sort of part of the book where I just wanted to see what, what, how, things, how people were getting along in that incredibly impoverished strip of land. Well, it has
0: a sense of journey. I mean, a sense of discovery. And one of the things I like about all of your work is uh, in that whatever journey you're on, uh, y- you, uh, you allow us to see exactly what is... Happening around you, even when it doesn't reflect particularly well on the Palestinians or even on yourself. I mean, I love your own critique of yourself as a journalist. And of course, I did that job for many years. And there is a kind of darkness, uh, maybe callousness. It's not that we don't feel, I think we do feel. Uh, But in that uh, drive to get a story, I mean, you in footnotes in Gaza, you'll talk about. Uh, those interviews where and you we're going to talk about that in a minute the 1956 massacres in Rafah and Han by the Israelis but uh, when you can't get stories about atrocities or carnage i mean there's a kind of frustration or when somebody starts repeating uh something you've already heard before and uh i mean all of that is is I, and i think that, that that unvarnished view including of course all the people who want uh, to get shekels from you for taking you on a tour of a mosque, or all the g- gaggles of kids who surround you, and um, uh, but we know that you're completely honest because you you don't take anything out. It reminds me very much of Orwell uh, pushes this, but I want to I want to just talk about the importance of that.
1: I think it gives your work
0: tremendous credibility.
1: Uh, thank you. Well, I think it's important to show those uh, shady parts of journalism or sort of the seams of journalism. Um, because when I was studying journalism, I didn't really understand how things worked in a way. I mean, I was studying it, but I, but to me, journalists seemed like sort of demigods that were floating on the wall and looking down with their all knowing eye. And then when you're there and you realize how you are, um, sort of assimilating material, and you see how other journalists are assimilating it, you realize it's not quite like that, that, um, you know, there, there are a lot of misunderstandings. There are a lot of, uh, there's a lot of guesswork. There's a lot of realizing you don't, you don't know things and a lot of wondering if you're being told the truth. All those things I think are important. I think they're important because I want people to understand sort of the process of journalism, um, the process of getting a story, and also to show that journalism is created by imperfect beings. It's not. It's not a science exactly. Uh, we all go in with our preconceived ideas, uh, our prejudices, and uh, you have to face those things. And I think that's. I think that's just an important element of the work I do. And and I'm lucky in that I'm not working through the mainstream, so I don't. I, I can actually put those sorts of things in it. And also the
0: way you will portray there, are, you know, you will, as you said, you will portray the seemier side of Palestine and and why that's important to your work.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, you as, as you suggested, you, you're often hearing things and you realize this won't sound so great, you know for the greater cause, but then you have to decide if you're an activist who's going to winnow those things out for some greater good. Or if you're a journalist who's trying to as much as possible tell the story honestly, and I always went on that side of things, because and I because I think even when Palestinians read the work, they get it. Um, why should they be ashamed of of all the passion and fury and anger that they might feel? It's it's completely understandable in the context which I am also trying to present. You've spent many many years, if you count the.
0: Palestine, and then we did a piece for Harper's Magazine, uh, a diary uh, in Hanna Yunis. Uh, uh, then you went back and did footnotes in Gaza. What is it about Palestine? And, uh, and 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 did Palestine grip you? You know, from that first experience. But you've invested tremendous time in
1: in, in, in Palestine. Well, I mean, you're a fellow journalist, you know, there, there, there's a, those, those particular stories that really hit you in the gut and just mattered to you for whatever reasons. And I think the, the whole Palestine thing really mattered to me on a personal level because I grew up thinking Palestinians were terrorists. And that began to shift around the time of the invasion of Lebanon in 81 and then the massacres in Sabra Shatila when I realized that oh, something else was going on. Later on, after I got my degree in journalism, um, I began to sort of uh, look at what how journalism had, helped, had shaped that viewpoint of Palestinians. And I realized that's what it was. And I was kind of appalled by what I didn't know and what I wasn't told by journalists. You know, there was a lot of reporting of facts, like a, an attack on a bus, Hostage situation with some airplanes or whatever it was—all of those were facts, but never any context. And I realized the only time I'd ever read or heard the word Palestinian was with with the word terrorism. So in a way, uh, I needed to do penance. I mean, I, I almost needed to atone in my own mind for that those misunderstandings and that ignorance. And it just became sort of a special passion because, I mean, I. I began to see how deeply wronged the Palestinian people were historically and how badly misrepresented they were. And it's those two, those two things, people deeply wronged and so badly misrepresented that really pulled me in that direction.
0: What is it from your first trip to Palestine? And it's interesting. I we, I was there, actually. We didn't meet then, but I was, I was uh, covering, I was living in Cairo, covering Gaza for the New York Times. What is it that, uh, particularly struck you? Were there was there certain incidents? Were there what what is it
1: that first hit you or gripped you? When I was there, it was the day-to-day humiliations and degradation. Um I mean there were always things that were more spectacular. There were always, you know, you could always find stories of people who were shot, people who were wounded, house demolitions, but it, w- it was these constant stories of humiliation uh men being told to get out of cars raise their arms and just sort of keep their arms up in the air they seem like little things but they were daily and they just added up and I-, I realized how dehumanized the palestinians had were you know from the israeli perspectives the israelis were constantly dehumanizing that's i think uh, over time that's the thing that really struck with me it's not it's not so much the spectacular things hmm. Although
0: in all of the work, there's that constant backdrop of violence because in footnotes in Gaza you will you will alternate between what happened in '56 and what's happening at the moment. It's on the eve of the war in Iraq, um, but there's that constant drumbeat. Uh, either you hear shots, or uh, and that just per- per- is pervasive through all of your work.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, and unfortunately because it's been pervasive in Palestinian history, so. Um, when I was there, as you were during the first Intifada, and then we were both there in this during the second intifada, it's like it's not like the the violence was turned on then just turned off, and it's been off since then, and now we can all reflect on it um you know in this way it was it's it was constant and it is constant i mean obviously with what's going on today, you see it's ramped up to a great level, so violence has always been the backdrop for Palestinians. Always since since before nineteen forty eight, but in particular since nineteen forty eight, it just hasn't
0: ceased. There's a wonderful moment at the end, I think, of Footnotes in Gaza, where you meet two Israeli women and they're saying, "Well, you know, you should see it from our perspective," Uh, or is that in Palestine? That's in Palestine. Yeah, and you're actually uh, uh, go to Tel Aviv, but you have this wonderful thing of, in in fact, I did see it from the
1: Israeli perspective.
0: I'll let you explain.
1: Yeah, I mean I thought my whole life had been I'd seen things from the Palestinian pers- the sorry from the Israeli perspective. That was pretty much the only perspective I had and that's what was filtered down through all the news broadcasts I ever saw and all the newspaper accounts I ever read. So I got the Israeli perspective and especially at that time in the early 1990s There wasn't, you know, social media. There there weren't a lot of people reporting on the ground for independent media. So I hadn't even heard many Palestinian voices. The only ones I ever heard were in sort of human rights reports. Let's say Al Haq, the the well-known Palestinian human rights organization. You know, there would be uh, these sort of deposition-like accounts of of being stopped, of being shot, or whatever it was. And they all read like legalistic, so they were very re- legalistic. And, and originally, I thought I would try to draw those things. I'd see if I could get permission to draw those. And then I realized that was way too, that was so dry. Like, you know, Palestinians weren't just victims with a capital V. You know, they, there was m- many other facets of their lives. And that's kind of what I wanted to find out. I wanted to actually go and talk to Palestinians. I just, You know, you you just didn't get that from the media at that time.
0: Well, you also reflect that you know I watched the settlers, and I watched the IDF. So I, I, in some sense, I do know the Israeli perspective. I just know it as it's seen through the Palestinian
1: experience. That's right. I mean, um, like the the whole two months I spent, um, the, the major trip I took to Gaza, the footnotes in Gaza, I never once saw. An Israeli soldier. I only saw Israeli vehicles, you know, uh, armored armored uh, troop carriers or bulldozers, especially, you know, military vehicles. I never saw I never saw someone's eyes. So that was also the Palestinian perspective.
0: Let's talk about footnotes in Gaza. This it's Genesis had took place in a magazine piece that we did together for Harper's magazine. We were working in Hani Yunus, where we focused peace, and uh, we uh, heard about these massacres in 1956 when the Israeli army, uh, under the Suez crisis—I think they were in Gaza for 100 days, if I uh, remember—carried out wholesale killings in uh, Hani Yunus, and then, as you found out later, Rafa— uh, and the magazine cut it out because it was uh, history. It wasn't uh, deemed important. Uh, you and I, of course, felt very differently. in this uh, set you on this project. But explain what happened and why you decided to devote so many years
1: to this book. Well, I think it was, frankly, it was just anger that that part was cut from your piece. I mean, these seemed like very valuable. Um, Memories that we were we were taking down, and very important in understanding the con the the context of what was going on. I mean, you remember we met El Rantisi, the very high uh, Hamas official, later assassinated by the Israelis, and his uncle was killed in 1956 by Israeli forces. He was nine years old at the time. Yeah, yeah, Rantisi was nine years old at the time, and what he told us was at that moment, you know, through all the grief, you know, he remembers um his dad wailing and everyone you know incredibly upset he said that planted hatred in their hearts and unfortunately there've been many instances like that that have that have stoked that hatred so it seemed very important to begin to understand those sorts of historical episodes cuz they're like they're they're like the building blocks for what we have today they're the building blocks of the context for what's going on now and And now is what's going on now becomes the context for what will happen in the future. So these things are important. It's important to understand them. And it's important to understand that things don't just come out of the blue. You know, this question, why do they hate us? Or the incitement comes from textbooks or something like that. I mean, come on. It comes from these episodes in history where people are shot and murdered. That's what it comes from and now bombed.
0: I mean, it's fascinating throughout the book, the Palestinians, you're constantly being questioned as to why you're focusing on 1956, with even some anger and people hauling you off to say, well, you have to look at what they did to my house. I mean, this is more important. Um, and I mean, you were right, but even the Palestinians themselves, often, some of them, not all of them, fail to see the importance of what you were documenting. And, and we should be clear that this has really not been documented. Of uh, uh, you know, very there's uh, very little reference to this. And just to go back, when you you uh, look at the UN reports, and they do that either or, you quote the report in the book where well, the Palestinians say this, the Israelis say this, and of course it just nullifies the event itself. Right, and
1: I mean the journalistic imperative is to say, well, this is not sort of a tennis match between two competing sides. What actually happened? And if you're not going to get it from documents, and people are alive who remember it, you know, you have you should make an effort to go and talk to those people. It's a very simple journalistic sort of enterprise, in a way. Okay, I'll talk to people and and try to find out what happened. And um, yeah, so that's that's what sort of launched me, you know, in that direction. And explain what happened. Uh, yeah. What what you found out. Okay. Um, okay. In. Um, there'd been so what you can say was a border war or a border conflict um with uh, Palestinians most mostly refugees then in the Gaza strip a lot of them were were sort of going back into israel to their to harvest their crops to go back to their homes to uh, that they had been displaced from or expelled from and the israelis were obviously against this they were killing some a lot of these people and border, border skirmishes started, and uh, guerrilla groups were set up by the Egyptian army,
0: which which, was, o- which
1: I should be clear occupied Gaza. Oh yeah, which occupied Gaza at that time, and they were running in a very sort of controlled, or they attempted to control. They were running Palestinian guerrillas into Israel, and so there were this the border clashes going on that could get quite heated at times, with many casualties, and in the 56th war. When basically, for the various reasons, Great Britain, France, and Israel wanted to sort of lay low Egypt and Nasser, who was president of Egypt, Uh, another one of the things the Israelis thought they could do is, is like they're doing now, is end this problem in Gaza once and for all, end the problem of the guerrillas once and for all. So when they came into Gaza and they conquered it quite quickly. They went into the town of Han Yunus, and they didn't do a screening operation of any sort. They basically just started shooting men. They shot them in their homes, they lined them up against walls and in the street, and they shot them. And according to the UN, about 275 uh, unarmed men were were killed. Later in, in Rafa, a few days later, They did do a screening operation where they just had all the men gather in a school so they could screen them to see if they were either in the Egyptian military or guerrillas. In the process of that screening operation, especially when the, the men were running toward the school and going through the gate, they shot them or they clubbed them so badly that they died. And more than 100, like 111, 112 individuals died in that. And those, both those incidents had a, a great mark on the people, obviously. I mean, it, And as you say, though, um, some of the younger generation didn't quite understand my focus on it. But as someone told me, in, events are continuous. I mean, they're, they're going on presently all the time. So it was hard for them to focus on those things. It was easier for me because that was kind of what I was determined to do. There's a lot of
0: violence in the book. It's a painful book to read. Many of the people you interview become emotionally very distraught. What was it like to, to draw
1: it and write it? Well, you might feel some of this, Chris. It's like when you're, when you're in the field talking to people, it's that the coldness that I, I sort of hint at in, in the book that you, you can get. You, you behave very professionally, almost like a doctor almost like a surgeon trying to get the story in. You, you go in, you get the story, you come out. And you have to sort of keep your own feelings at bay. You just have to collect the information and be as accurate as possible. So that's one part of, of the job. The other part is when I'm drawing. I mean, even years later, that's when it sort of really hits me because then I can no longer detach myself in the same way I have to sort of inhabit each person as I'm drawing them. You have to sort of feel what you try to feel what they're going through in order to draw them. So that's when it becomes more difficult. That's when you're really getting the full impact of of what you did. I mean, the drawing table is a, a harder place to be than the streets of Gaza on some level.
0: Well, I think you said you couldn't. You didn't want to go through that experience again. If I'm quoting you correctly. Yeah,
1: I mean. I don't know how you feel, but but I always feel like that kind of journalism has sort of a half-life. There's only so much of it you can do um, before you begin to sort of run out of steam. So, you know, you just have to know when to maybe change focus a bit. Well, emotion- there's a
0: huge emotional
1: cost. Right. And that's what makes it so hard to watch what's going on now. Yeah. I mean, you know, you feel everything that's going on now, I mean, um, it's, uh, just, it's pretty overpowering. I mean, you can imagine what it's like for them, obviously.
0: Yes. And it's, uh, you know, in some ways it's the culmination of 75 years of indiscriminate violence. And, and it just seems that each time that wave of Israeli violence hits Gaza, it hits it at uh, a level or has an intensity that it didn't have before, and what we're seeing now as an intensity we've never seen before, even in 1948. Um, what what are your thoughts on what's happening and and how it is? how it should be
1: seen from a historical perspective? Well, as you say, it's a culmination. It might not even be the low point. That's what scares me, you know, even more. Uh, it's the natural logic of what's been coming since 1948. It's, it is actually the logic of 1948. It's Back in those days, it was the same idea. We need to expel the people. I mean, Herzl said that in the 1800s, that we need to spirit the penniless population across the border. It's nothing new in a way, but it was always inching toward this, and it seems to have reached uh, another, what you can definitely say, a catastrophe, and what I think is looks like a genocide to me. So I don't know where it goes from here. I mean, it seems like the israelis do want to expel the palestinians they just want to get rid of this population in any way any way possible and i think by making gaza uninhabitable there'll be a lot of pressure from the palestinians living there themselves i think to get out cuz a lot of them have probably reached a breaking point
0: yeah it's clear israel has offered them a choice they can die from bullets bombs exposure or disease I mean five hundred thousand Palestinians, according to the u n are literally at starvation level, or they can leave that that seems to be what they're orchestrating uh and and it's just on a larger scale uh they did the same tactic which you report on in nineteen forty eight it wasn't any different
1: right i mean um yeah they they're just taking it to a greater level this is this is kind of their big chance in a way i mean perhaps it'll get foiled i don't know but i think we've we've seen it now sort of at its most at its most raw and its most naked i mean no one who sees it now can deny
0: it i was reading that passage in your book footnotes in gaza you write about palestinians being expelled to gaza and uh, it's exactly what's happening today I, I, in southern gaza they have there's no there's no housing there's no infrastructure and in the book you're writing about how they dig holes they dig holes in the ground to sleep in which is precisely what we're seeing in rafa and hani Yunus at this moment
1: right it's a complete reversion to what happened in 48 people are in tents people are just trying to shelter themselves and in many ways you know you, you it's it is worse because there is a there seems to be a starving of the population. It's not just hunger, it's starvation, and like you say, disease, and continual continual military assault. So it's yeah, it's um it's at another point now. It's at another level.
0: And the other continuum, which you also note in particular in footnotes and Gaza, with the cynicism of Nasser and the Egyptians, is the indifference of the international community and even Arab countries who rhetorically will speak on behalf of the Palestinians but do very little to help them can you talk about that continuum
1: yeah I think in, in some ways um, the Palestinians are a way that other Arab populations are allowed to vent their frustrations at their own dictatorships and their own conditions you know it's it's sort of the release valve for passions and anger but i do think i do think the average arab person has a lot of feeling for the palestinians it's the governments and i mean governments make treaties and make agreements with other governments they don't make them with the people so there's always that disconnect and you and yes the arab governments are treating this problem mostly they're treating it quite cynically
0: you have you been in touch with people you worked with? I mean, you know, I haven't been to Gaza for some time, I think, since we did our magazine piece. Um, But have you been trying to reach out to people? And if you had, what have you heard? And just talk about that connection, if there is one.
1: Sure. Well, I mean, there's a couple of people who um, I was in touch with for some time. One of them, for not so long, I haven't heard from him in about Six or eight weeks. I'm quite worried. Um, another friend I haven't heard from him in about three weeks, and I'm quite worried because a lot of his family members have died, an uncle and his entire family, uh, a cousin and his entire family, and then two daughters of another cousin and their entire families. so uh, it's hit him quite it's it, it's hit him quite hard. um and I haven't heard from him either. So, you know, just waiting.
0: And how do you see it playing out? Or do you have any idea where it's headed or I mean it, seems, it I don't know that the Israeli government even knows where it's headed.
1: Yeah, I you know, it's it's hard to say exactly. I I think Netanyahu needs to demonstrate something. He needs to demonstrate something to the Israeli people that will help him claw his way back into their hearts. And it has to be something profound, I think. And that's troubling. Um, so I don't really expect any good things to come out of this. I, I think we're in for some, perhaps some changes, maybe some surprises. These kind of things, you lift the lid off, the, off them and you never know where they're going to go. You never know how it's really going to play out. And then you have to think, well, what's it going to look like in five years or 10 years or 20 years? And you just don't know. What you do know is that. Nothing has been resolved. The hatred will continue. The fear will continue. And if we've we've come to this level, what's the next step? What's the next stage? Well, that's why footnotes in Gaza is so important. Well, thanks. I, I, I mean, it's important to provide the context. You, you do wish these books would sort of run out of steam and wouldn't have the same meaning and would be, um, you know, g- become obsolete. <laughs>
0: It's absolutely vital, um, and it's just tremendous work. Uh, that was the cartoonist Joe Sacco, author of Palestine and Footnotes in Gaza. I want to thank the Real News Network and its production team: Cameron Granadino, Adam Coley, David Hebden, and Kayla Rivera. You can find me at chrishedges.substack.com. <laughs>